Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. You are listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation about science and technology. I'm Hal Hodson, technology correspondent at The Economist. This week, flying cars. Uber and a clutch of other firms are talking about a near future of on-demand urban air transportation. And they're hoping to have working prototypes of this service by 2020. We'll discuss how that might look in practice. Very ambitious. There's a lot that needs to be accomplished before then. Also on the show, we will hear how moth larvae could be the unlikely saviors of a world drowning in plastic. These larvae, these caterpillars, have the potential to really make a big difference on the ecological stage. And a new artificial womb under development could help premature babies survive. The fetus is in the bag. The bag is full of substitute amniotic fluid. You control the temperature, you control the pressure. Um, because the bag's a sealed unit, you drastically reduce the chances of infection. First, though, another staple of science fiction could soon become a reality. This week, Uber announced their newest attempt to shake up the established world of urban transportation, this time by looking to the skies. But they aren't the only firm in the mix with the same idea. So flying cars could, quite literally, be on the horizon. But how might that look in a practical sense? Is it even realistic? Joining us on the line from San Francisco is our United States technology editor, Alexandra Suich. Hi, Alexandra. Hi. So what exactly have Uber announced here? So Uber took this to the stage in Dallas to announce plans to try to make these flying cars a reality. They do not want to own the cars, but they're trying to act as a catalyst for the ecosystem. So they've brought together several hundred people in aerospace, regulation, manufacturers and the like to talk about how a service might be developed within the next few years so that people could hail these flying vehicles like they do currently cars. It's important to say that we talk about flying cars, but these aren't really kind of roadable aircraft. They couldn't really drive. What they, they're more like are electric helicopters where they're able to land and take off vertically and very quietly. So Uber presented its plans to create initially a service in Dallas-Fort Worth area and Dubai, two places that are very friendly to airspace initiatives and where people commute long distances. And they're hoping to have working prototypes of this service by 2020. Very ambitious and exciting to people in the room. There's a lot that needs to be accomplished before then. Right. So I understand that you were there in Dallas for the announcement and had a chance to chat to some of the Uber folks about this. Did they say anything about the kinds of technology they want to go with here? I mean, you mentioned electric helicopters. Are there any more details around that? So I interviewed Jeff Holden, who's Uber's chief product officer, and they want to remain agnostic about the manufacturers they work with because they ultimately don't want to own these vehicles. They do want them to be electric so as to minimize pollution. And 
they have a view of what has to work in order for these services to become popular. For example, a vehicle needs to be able to land and take off really within a minute so that they are continuously working and very efficient. They need to be able to charge quickly. They need to be able to go quickly. Um, and then they need to be able to reuse the space that already exists in cities. So their idea is to have these vertiports, helicopter landing pads on the tops of buildings where you'll be able to go load in as you would in a carpool into a car, take off and get to your destination very quickly. The last thing is cost, and they're very optimistically saying that they can get, within the first few years of service, the cost to look something like it would for UberX in a cost per mile. So that's, of course, their low-cost car service. They're saying that they can get it to be equivalent. And their idea with this is that they're going to completely kind of reshape what's possible with the relationship between suburbs and cities. So if you live what could be a two-hour commute away, let's say between San Francisco is where you live and you need to go to San Jose, you'll be able to get there in 20 minutes instead of two hours. Now, I think it, it's important to note that Uber did not come up with this idea. There's a lot of other companies in the mix here, right? Uh, and maybe if can you give us a brief walkthrough of who those other companies are and what they're doing? This has been thought about for decades. And even Henry Ford thought about flying cars. He predicted that a combination of automobile and plane would one day emerge. There are several startups where working in the space and kind of established manufacturers as well, all have different visions of what this would look like. I think it's probably like the early days when you were starting from scratch, imagining what the best design of a car would be. I imagine we're going to see more cohesion of vision going forward. Right now, it's totally scattered across the board. Right. Now, our social affairs editor, Joel Budd, wrote a fantastic briefing a few weeks ago on parking. It highlighted for me just how much an insane amount of space gets taken up by cars that are parked in our cities. Do you think that this new model of transportation, did Uber talk about how, you know, where you would actually land these things? If you eliminated parking, it would give one the opportunity to completely reshape cities and add more greenery. So Uber shared that utopian vision that by eliminating or reducing car congestion and parking, one cities would look a whole lot better. Their view is that you will be able to build, and they don't plan to build this. Um, they had actually the speaker from a real estate firm in the Dallas-Fort Worth area who's paying to build these vertiports on top of their buildings speak yesterday. Their plan is to build on skyscrapers or near airports and hubs where you would want to take off these relatively small landing pads. The key is really managing noise. So that's going to be a key consideration of where these landing pads or vertiports can be built is if they manage the noise. And if they can, then they could conceivably put them on top of buildings like offices where people wouldn't necessarily be disturbed. Now, visions of utopia, are these e-helicopters going to be autonomously piloted or will you have a qualified human pilot uh, flying you around? Great question. This is going to be one of the biggest challenges for these companies that are wanting to see this as a reality. In the near term, they're going to have to get pilots licensed. They're hoping that it won't be as rigorous as flying a traditional aircraft or there's just not the supply of interested people. Ultimately, though, 
in the long term, they want these to be autonomous. This opens up a whole host of regulatory issues. I have to tell you on that point, I asked Jeff Holden from Uber yesterday because Uber is notorious for being very aggressive about going into cities and then just operating and hoping people vote with their feet and contact their congressmen and they don't get kicked out. So they've pushed the legal barriers. I asked him if that was the plan with these flying cars. And he admitted that aviation was very different. So they're only going to be able to go into places where they actually have permission. Of course, that's going to slow the spread of this type of service. So it's not going to spread as virally by any means as ride hailing did over the last few years. Right. So Uber X, Uber Pool, Uber Black, and now Uber Chopper. <laughs> Uber Air. <laughs> Uber Air, even better. Yes. Perfect. All right. Well, Alexander Such, thank you very much for coming on the show. Great to talk to you. Great to talk to you. Thanks for having me. So, listeners, what do you think of a future with flying cars? Do you think Uber has what it takes to push this technology to fruition? Let us know what you think by emailing us at radio at Across the rich world, the leading cause of infant death is now premature birth. A baby born early is burdened with various health defects which dramatically reduce its chances of survival. An artificial womb created by a team of doctors in America hopes to improve the situation. Here to explain more about it is Tim Cross, our science correspondent. Hi, Hal. Tim, what sort of problems come with premature birth? Well, like you said, we should say at the start, this is essentially a sort of good news story. You know, there are lots of babies born now who, if they were born 10, 20 years ago, wouldn't have survived who do. But the problem is essentially, you know, if you're born at 23, 24 weeks, that's around about sort of halfway through a, a standard pregnancy, perhaps a bit more. You're just simply not ready for life in the outside world. So babies' lungs aren't adapted to breathing air. They're still developing on the assumption that they'll be in a womb and full of amniotic fluid. Their hearts are very weak, they're susceptible to infection, you've got to get uh, nutrients into them somehow because their digestive systems aren't developed, so that usually means you've got to put needles in them and, 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 and supply the nutrients intravenously. And all this is really difficult, and the patient you have to do it on is very, very delicate. So, you know, very, very roughly at sort of 23, 24 weeks, there's maybe a 50-50 chance of survival. But the babies that do survive, a great deal of them, end up with things like chronic breathing problems or brain damage or partial or complete blindness, you know, big problems that last for the rest of their lives. So what these doctors at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia are trying to do is build a device that can keep these babies alive, hopefully with much less of the damage that we currently see. Right. So incubation for premature babies, those kinds of tanks, you might see them in a hospital ward today. What's different about this one? What does it look like and how does it work? Well, so the idea with this one is it's been designed as closely as possible to mimic a sort of natural womb. The initial prototype was something that looked a bit like, you know, what you see in a hospital now, a sort of incubator that looks, I guess, a bit like a fish tank with a baby in it. But the final version looks a bit like a jiffy bag almost, something like that, a very high-tech jiffy bag. And the idea is the fetus, and I should say they tested these on lambs, the fetus is in the bag, the bag is full of substitute amniotic fluid. You control the temperature, you control the pressure. Um, because the bag's a sealed unit, you drastically reduce the chances of infection. And then you, you still have to run various lines in. But what they do here is they, they actually put the tubing into the um, umbilical cord so that the blood flows in and out of the fetus 
in a sort of similar way to how it would you mm. know, in, in, in a real wound where the placenta is connected to the umbilical cord and, and the blood flows that way. So the, the, the general idea is to make this as much like a natural womb as you possibly can. Does that mean that these premature babies in this, or premature baby lambs, are, are actually not breathing in this new kind of artificial womb? No, they're not. So they're, they're connected up uh, through these cannulas that go into the umbilical cord to a sort of artificial gas exchange system that breathes for them. And that's another one of the big innovations. So one of the problems with the existing systems is that a lot of the time you have to apply outside pressure to circulate the blood. You have to use a pump. And because fetal hearts are so small and so delicate, that artificial pressure can sometimes you know, damage them for life. What they've done here is by shrinking everything down and using a sort of new design for the oxygen exchange bit and by keeping the tubing as short as possible, they're able to let the lamb's heart itself do all the pumping work. So there's no need for an external pump, so the pressures don't get too high or, or too low, and none of those problems arise. So this technology is very specific. Do we have any sense of how long it'll be before we see this kind of thing in hospitals? A long time, probably. The usual caveats with animal models, lambs aren't, aren't humans. And they, they, they use lambs that were sort of gestationally similar to human babies at that kind of age, but the lambs are much bigger, like a human baby is only about a third the size, so they'll have to shrink the equipment quite a lot to make it work uh, with humans. And then there's all, you know, more tests, they'll have to really convince regulators, because getting approval for medical devices is really hard, getting approval for medical devices for extremely premature infants is really, really, really hard. And there's one interesting comparison made, which is that there's something that's now a standard treatment for women who are uh, at risk of having premature babies, which is to give them steroids, because that accelerates the development of their lungs and makes them, you know, if they are born prematurely, they've got a better chance of, of surviving on air. That was originally sort of discovered in lambs, and it took something like 20 years for it to go from animal models to actual human hospitals. So this, you're looking at, I don't know, the researchers say a decade. I wouldn't be surprised if that's optimistic. Right. So exo-wombs, not on the horizon, but we're working on On the it. distant horizon. On the distant horizon. Fair exactly. enough. All right. Well, Tim, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks, Hal. Finally, moths are generally thought of as a nuisance, and those who do get excited about spotting one are probably in the minority. That could soon change. It seems these furry little fellows could be the unlikely saviours of the planet, as they, or at least their larvae, have been found munching through plastic. Science correspondent Matt Kaplan is joining us now to explain more. Hiya, Matt. Hey, how's it going? So, moths eating plastic. This doesn't sound like the kind of hypothesis you come up with in a lab. Yeah, you know, what, what's so cool is every now and again you have science that just happens by chance. And the researchers behind this work, based in Spain, the lead researcher happens to be an amateur beekeeper. And she was looking at the honeycombs in her hives. And uh, one day when she was doing this, she noticed that there were caterpillars uh, munching away at the, the honey and the beeswax. And without much thinking about it, she just collected them, threw them in a plastic bag, brought them home, and left them in the house while she went about doing something else so that she could study what they were later because she was curious. And when she got back, she found that they were running around her house. Well, caterpillars don't run, but you get the picture. So she wanted to figure out more, and she, she looked at the plastic bag, saw they had munched through it, and got thinking, well, well, wait a minute, these insects chewed through plastic. How did that happen? So that's when she started working on the caterpillars in a little bit more depth and collaborated with some other researchers to take a look at which species they were and what they were capable of. Right. 
Right. And why? Why are they eating this plastic? Like, I can't imagine that plastic bags are nutritious in any way. What are the larvae getting out of this? Plastic bags are not what they were selected to be good at eating. These caterpillars, which are the, the larval form of the greater wax moth, are found in honeybee hives most of the time, and they make their living chewing through beeswax and getting some nutrition from it and then lapping up honey. So it turns out that the bonds that hold together beeswax are an awful lot like the bonds that hold together the polyethylene that's found in most of the plastic that ends up in landfill. So they are capable of chewing through it. And the big question is, what exactly is in their excrement? Because if they're pooping out stuff that is non-bound together and non-toxic, then these larvae, these caterpillars, have the potential to really make a big difference on the ecological stage. So these larvae were essentially tricked into chomping through this plastic. (laughs) Well, in fact, they were imprisoned by the lead researcher because she wanted to go and study them. And she figured, well, nothing chews through plastic bags, so I'm going to shove them in that and I'll look at them later. So are there any other organisms out in the world that can eat plastic like this, or are we looking at a world first? No, there are other species that definitely do this. We know, for example, that there are microorganisms out in the ocean where lots and lots of plastics are congregating together in the center of the Pacific, for example, that are able to very slowly rip apart the bonds that are in plastic and actually gain some sustenance from it. Similarly, there's some fungi and bacteria that researchers have messed around with in the lab to try to break down plastics. But the problem is they do it so slowly. The very best we can get out of a few species of bacteria is six months to gnaw through just a tiny bit of plastic. And so that doesn't help us very much. The fact that these caterpillars can do it so quickly is really promising. In about 40 minutes, each caterpillar can make two to two and a half holes each, which are, you know, the holes are small, but still, to be able to do that is pretty impressive. So then, are we about to see blankets of moths covering our landfills, slowly chomping away at the plastic therein and helping us deal with that problem? That sounds kind of like a nice future to me. That would be pretty cool. I doubt very much that we're going to see these moths distributed over landfills to chew up plastic. My suspicion is that we're going to see facilities that would be developed with the caterpillars where they're incubated and given exactly what they need to be able to thrive and most importantly maintain their caterpillar status for as long as possible. Because once they pupate into moths, they don't do us a lot of good anymore. So it, it's, it's going to be important to be able to create a facility where you have caterpillars chewing away for as long as they can and then use the moths to lay more eggs to get more caterpillars to chew up more plastic. And all of that is contingent on the feces of these caterpillars not being toxic, which still needs to be explored. Awesome. Turning the hungry caterpillar to human needs. Matt, thanks very much for coming on. Hey, no problem, Hal. Take care. That's all for this episode of Babbage. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please take a moment to rate it through your favorite podcast app or on iTunes. Better yet, tell someone about it. As always, if you have any thoughts on this week's show, email us at radioeconomist.com. In London, this is The Economist. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk 
forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.